Thank you for that warm introduction, Jed, and thank you for my cheering section, wherever they are. So I think I have a new goal after I preach um, today is that when you guys are going through Colossians in the spring, you can just skip the weeks that I've covered in the sermon today. So hopefully you guys will find that after I I get done with my my, uh, message today. So I want to I want to start today asking everybody to think about a question, just a rhetorical question, something for you guys to think about. But it's it's going to be at the crux of what I speak of today. And the question is this. What motivates us? What motivates you, me, us in anything that we do? And that's it. What motivates us in life and what we do? Is it your career? Is it family, relationships, money? How about what role does your relationship with God serve and what motivates you? I'd argue that there's very little that we do in life that isn't motivated by something. Everything we do carries motivation with it. We just turned over the calendar year, for those of you who weren't noticing. It's now 2013. And at the beginning of every year, we are all inspired to make great changes in our, in our lives. And what are those action items called? New Year's resolutions. So people all over the country this week or last week were making their new New Year's resolutions. Um, Just some statistics. Last year, 48% of Americans made New Year's resolutions. So here are the top three that I listed from last year. So the number three, one, spend less, save more. Number two was getting organized. And the number one one was losing weight. In fact, three of the top ten had to do with body image. So I think you can see what motivates people this time of the year. Maybe for us, we're not necessarily setting resolutions in our lives, but we're going into the new year with goals or calls to action. Maybe they're in our daily walk with God. Maybe they're physical goals, mental goals, goals as a father or a husband, wife, worker, manager. Whatever they are, whether they're resolutions, goals, they're motivated by something. We're still motivated by something in what we do. So let me just tell you a story about me. A lot of you guys know something that I'm motivated about and passionate about. I love to run. I know there's a few people in here, although I'm missing some of my favorite runners in here. But I enjoy running, and it's something that uh, yeah, I just enjoy doing. I love to do it. And I have goals and things that motivate me when I'm out running. I hope someday to break the four-hour mark in a marathon. I hope to run an ultra marathon, maybe 50 miles or even possibly the Leadville 100. And those had served as a goal for me and a motivation for me at 5 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock, maybe even sometimes at 4 o'clock in the morning to get up and run, no matter how cold it is. And let me tell you, on those mornings when it's about 5 degrees out, it's 5.30 and it's dark, it's hard to get up. Thankfully, I've had some people who are in the crowd today that have helped motivate me at those times and have gone outside of warm houses to go out on those runs. So that's just one example of what's motivated me and what I was really thinking about when I was preparing this. Maybe for others here, your motivation to get up in the morning is the sound of a baby crying or baby laughing, and I am glad to know that I know what both of those sound like. Maybe it's so you can get up and get ready for work to earn a living for your family. There's nothing wrong with being motivated. There's nothing wrong with having these goals in life. Motivation is a great thing. It encourages us to perform beyond our normal means. But again, I started today with the question, what motivates us? We really need to know that. So what I'm going to be talking about today 
is Paul's motivational speech, as I call it, to the Colossians. The passage we're going to be looking at today is probably familiar to a lot of you. If anything, for the two verses that are embedded in this. It's Colossians 3 through 4, 1. And the two verses we probably know best are verses 17 and 23. But two things can happen, I think, when you're looking at this particular passage. One, we can get tunnel vision just to those two verses and miss out on the rest of what Paul is saying in that passage. Or we can be kind of have the wide-angle lens on looking at the whole passage and miss some really rich verses in here, specifically verse 17, which I'm going to spend a lot of time on today. I came up with this with Judd, that verse 17 is the hinge point of the passage, and it should serve as a hinge point for our lives as well. So that's where we're heading this morning. Just bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and honored to be here before your presence. And I am humbled and honored to be here delivering your words, Lord. And that's all I pray for today is that your words speak through me and into our hearts that they find fertile soil, Lord. And when we leave here, we are encouraged by your word. We are encouraged to live our lives differently out in this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So before we get into the text... I just want to set it up for you. What kind of Paul's been saying to the Colossians? Prior to verse 3, he spent some time laying out the sufficiency of Christ in, in overcoming all things. And Judd actually read some of what I was going to read to you guys today as well. In 128, and these aren't up on the slides, I apologize. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So kind of his goal for, for what he's talking about. And later in chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Provides kind of a nice foreshadowing for what I'm going to be discussing later. So in chapter 3, he shifts more to our day-to-day lives. And, and what we are to look like as Christians. What does that Christian life look like? What does a life changed by Christ look like? And ultimately, the how and the why of what we do. So starting in verse 1, you guys can follow on the screen. This is in the English Standard Version. If then you have been raised by Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Finally, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We can all take a deep breath after that. A lot in this passage. And we're just going to go word by word, just so you guys know. So I hope you guys... Just kidding. So if you're following along in your notes, I start with enabled. We're enabled by Christ to change. This is what I want you guys to focus on, this first part here. In verse 1, Paul starts in very much the same way I did this morning. He asks his crowd a question. A rhetorical one, but one that we must be certain on. Where I asked my question this morning to get us all focused on motivation and what we're motivated by, Paul is making certain we're all starting from the same starting point. He didn't start, well, if you're good people or if you want to do your best. No, he starts with, if then you've been raised with Christ, and we all know the answer to that for us believers is yes, well, then change what you're seeking. What we think about and what we do shows what we're seeking and what we desire in life. Is it self-seeking? Is it seeking God? Is it desiring others? Consequently, what we seek shows us and other mi- others, mind you, what motivates us, why we're doing those things. Our lives should have a different direction, a different pursuit post-Christ. Pre-Christ, we're heading in one direction. Post-Christ, in another direction. And the same goes for our motivation. We may have been motivated by one thing pre-Christ. Now we should be motivated by something different post-Christ. And where should that be? On seeking things above where Christ is. We are called to seek heavenly things. On the life God has called us to, not on earthly things. You know, Paul is just repeating words that we've heard from Christ. In Matthew 6.33, he said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So now we're seeking what we ought. Paul gives us another command. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Now we may feel like Paul is just repeating himself here. Well, didn't you just say that? 
But he, he's not. He's emphasizing two aspects of our will. One is what we seek. The other is what we focus on. And these two, they go hand in hand. One side I like to say is mentally oriented. The other one is action oriented. I think we can all come up with many instances where our mind was set on doing one thing, but our action showed something else. That is why he mentions both. It's important to get that. Then Paul transitions us from the what to the why. Why are we to seek the things above? Why are we to set our minds on things above? Because we have died. And as he said in verse 3, we have been crucified with Christ and our life is hidden with God. Galatians 2, 19 and 21 says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The New Living Translation says, We have died to this life. It's all past tense. It has happened. When we accepted Christ into our lives, our life was hidden with Christ. But our death to this life, it comes with such a beautiful promise. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. What an amazing promise. This is a promise in our present that will come in the future. Christ becomes our life. We are raised with him. And we are assured of appearing with him in glory in heaven. Paul in Romans 6 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice the similar words Paul uses here in Romans and in Colossians when he says united with him or Christ who is your life. Doesn't that already spur us on to want to seek heavenly things, to set our mind on things above? Well, Paul now takes us from our mindset into our actions, into a changing of clothes, if you will. See, clothes are what people, they see on us. I dress special for today because I'm up here. We all wear clothes of some sort, and we can tell a lot by a person by what they're wearing. If someone's wearing a black button-up shirt with a white collar, chances are they're a priest. If a guy's wearing a big blue shirt with a silver star on it, probably a cowboy's band. And there's clothing for appropriate places as well. We don't go to a job interview in a bathing suit, nor do we go to the beach in a three-piece suit. Now, this is not to say that clothing can't come up, cover up who we really are, but I only mention clothing that it can say something about a person. It can say something. In the same way, our actions can say something about us. It can say a lot about a person. And there's appropriate actions for various circumstances. We don't go into funerals cheering. We don't mourn at football games unless you're a Chiefs fan. (laughs) As Christians, we have appropriate clothing. We have appropriate actions we are to show the world. As Paul speaks in these next few verses, his focus is solely on our actions. But in light of this language, I feel it's best to use this changing of the clothes model, if you will. So before we can put on the clothing of a Christian, we must first take off the clothing of our sinful nature of the world. Now notice the language Paul uses when he transitions into this section. Put off 
in one translation, or put to death. It doesn't seem like he leaves a lot of middle room or middle ground for us here, room for compromise when he's telling us to put to death our actions. Put to death what is earthly in you. Again, you know who else spoke with such severity and such strong words? How about Christ when he told us to cut off our hand or pluck out our eye, lest we follow our actions to hell? We are dealing with life and death in this world as Christians. We may have died with Christ, but we are still living our lives, putting to death the things of our old lives. In Galatians 5.24, it says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Also, in Romans 8, 12 and 14, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Again, we're dealing with life and death here. So let's just look at the deeds of the body and what, what Paul talks to us about. So just with a show of hands, who has ever struggled with these? And just kidding with the show of hands. <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, not watching soccer. Just kidding, just making sure you guys are listening. Paul hits us with sins we've all committed. First, he hits us with sins of the flesh, sexual immorality, which in the Greek is pornea, where we get the word pornography, impurity in a moral sense, passion, evil desires or longing for what is forbidden. Next, he moves from the sins of the flesh to the sins of our eyes, covetousness. It's the idea of, of wanting more, of longing for, for something that we don't have. And Paul equates that to idolatry. Where is our mindset? If we're coveting things on the earth, are our minds on Christ? Are our mindset on things above? Are we seeking the things above? No. We make those objects our idols. But before we forget, Paul wants to remind us of two things here. One, the wrath of God is coming because of these sins. But second, lest we forget, we were all once walking in them. We were living for them, but now our life has changed. As he says in Romans 7, 4, and 5, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Just remember where we all came from. As Paul continues, we look at the sins of emotions. And according to my wife, I have none. But emotions, that is, not sin. But when, when Paul puts it this way, it's clear to see we, we all have emotions, and especially these sinful ones. Let's see, we've got anger, a violent emotion, wrath, anger boiling up, malice, which is ill will. Finally, we have sins of the tongue, slander or blasphemy, obscene talk, foul, filthy talk, lying and deliberate falsehoods. I remember the verse Heath used this morning in Sunday school in Ephesians, talking about let no unwholesome word come from your mouth. Paul's not saying these things to berate his audience, and neither am I. It's to remind us of those things that we struggled with and may even continue to struggle with. But it's as important to remember where we come from, pre-Christ, and the sins we are fleeing 
as it is to know where we're going and what the life of Christ is to look like. And Paul leaves us with just a few more thoughts before he switches gears. You have put off the old self. You put on the new. So put into practice your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And in this new life, with this new self, there's no distinction between us. And Paul's reiterating his lack of distinction that he mentions in Galatians 3, 26 and 28. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, no male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And again, just to emphasize that point, Romans 10, 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So I know I introduced this section, which is saying we are to be enabled by Christ. And I know it's been a while since I've mentioned that word. But this is where it all comes together at the end of this section before we really get to the meat. What enables us to change our focus? What enables us to change our lives and our actions? Paul answers it for us right here. Christ is all and in all. Or as the New Living Translation says, I really like this. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Christ is all that matters. What a statement. Christ is all that matters, and he is in each of us. It's not all on us. It's not up to us. Another bit of foreshadowing before he gets to the command, he gives us in verse 17, that Christ is all that matters in life. And as we see later, Christ should be all that matters in our motivation. So now that we have put off, put to death the actions of our past, we need to replace them with characteristics of Christ. In Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, Paul shows a similar transition. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him or were taught in him, as the trust is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put off the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what are we to put on? Compassionate hearts. Kindness. We'll speak to the way we treat others. Humility and meekness, which gives us kind of a proper state of mind. Patience. Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other. Those lend to how we are to treat others when we're mistreated. And more to the point, when we're mistreated. And lastly, above all, put on love. It is that which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Without love, we fail at all others. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And Paul doesn't stop there with his commands. And this is one of the best parts of this section. He calls us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I really want to emphasize the three little words, let. Be so powerful. Let it. It denotes that something is ready to happen if we just get out of the way and let it. There it is again. Let it happen. We'll allow it to happen. As Christ said, as Paul said before, Christ is already in us. Let allow Christ to be at work in you. We are enabled by Christ. Christ is in us. Let yourself be changed with the peace of Christ. It's to rule our hearts. We are to live at peace in the body of Christ. Regarding the word, word of Christ, let it dwell in you richly. 
But what does that look like? It means it has free course in our lives. It's obedience to the word. And the only way we know what the word says is by studying it, by making it a priority in our lives. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The rich dwelling of the scripture leads us to worship of the Lord. And we can sum up this section, I feel like, by saying, be holy, be loving, be at peace, be in the word, and be in worship. It's really imperative we get this first half of the passage before I make my transition here. Paul's commanding us to set our minds on things above, to seek the things above, to put off our sinful actions, and to put on godly characteristics. But he ends it calling us to let Christ work in us. It is he who enables us to do any of this. It's he who enables us to do any of this. Okay. Now I got my focus changed, changed my clothes. Now we get to the crux of the passage, the why. What is motivating us to make these changes? We're not all moralists here, so there's got to be a reason for the way we are the way we are. Listen to verse 17 one more time. And remember, this is Paul's encouragement for us, how we are to be motivated by Christ. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is, as I had labeled before, is the hinge point of the passage and should be the hinge point of our lives. Without proper motivation, without our compass pointing to Christ, we're just good people. Not even that. We all know we're not good people. And that gets us nowhere. So as we really examine and pick apart this verse, let's start with whatever you do. It's meant to be all-encompassing. There's no part of our lives this isn't supposed to touch. I heard on the radio the other day, whatever is such a funny word. In fact, it was, it was rated as the most annoying word of 2012. In, in fact... This is the best part. It's been rated that now for three years in a row. But Paul's not using it in that flippant, whatever, whatever. It's whatever, whatever of your life. He wants to make sure he's hitting us in everything that we do or say. So Paul's called us to clean up the ugliness of things, our words, deeds, and encouraged us to put on Christ-like characteristics through his enablement. What we show people, and I said this before, around us in our words and deeds are showing the world what we're truly setting our minds on. And if we're really putting on Christ in our lives, we see a similar verse in 1 Corinthians 10.31, another one that I think a lot of you know. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do in life is meant to give glory to God. But it's, it's more than that, as Paul is talking to the Colossians. This is really getting to the meat here. It's acting under and with the authority of Christ. Doing something in the name of someone carries the authority of that person with it. But we can't just stop there. We're also under the authority of Christ. Let me repeat that. We're with the authority of Christ, but we're also still under his authority. 
German theologian Edward Loesch suggests that the phrase in the name of the Lord Jesus was to encourage the conviction that the Christian's entire life is placed under obedience to the Lord. I really like that. So let me give you an example of what I'm trying to convey here. Think about messengers that were dispatched in the days of kings and lords. The the messenger went out to wherever they were sent and carried with them the message from the king. That messenger carried with him the authority from the king to make sure that message was either followed or the law was followed. But more than that, they still acted under the authority of the king. They did not act on their own accord. We represent Christ in all that we do. We carry his authority as Christians in what we do, but more than that, we're to be obedient to him in all we do. Because as Paul said before, we put on the new self. And we're being renewed in the image of our Creator. I think this whole passage speaks to Paul's desire for us to bear the image of Christ, to be obedient to his word. If that weren't the case, why does he spend so much time speaking of the actions to get rid of, followed by the actions that were portrayed before he gets here? I was talking to Judd the other day about this. As I was preparing the message, I was really worried that that people were going to feel like we've gone down the road of earning your salvation and the road to legalism. That's not what I want to say today, and that's not what Paul is saying to the Colossians. I think as Christians, we can be gun-shy at times that when we start speaking about actions in our lives and what our lives are supposed to look like, we get labeled as legalists right away. But the Christian life is first grace and second obedience. Jed always uses the, the stringing the guitar example. On one side, we have God's grace and what he's done for us, on the other side, it's our obedience to him. This is the life we're called to. We are called to a certain life. And Paul is encouraging us to be obedient to Christ. And here's the thing. Not to become alive in Christ. Not to earn our salvation. But to be obedient because we already are alive in Christ. Because of his death and his resurrection. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And then I apologize, this one's not up there. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Let's be clear. It is Christ who has done the work for us, not us. So once again, coming back to the text and what it means for our lives, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord. And using his words to the Corinthians, do it all to the glory of God. Is that our motivation in life? Is this phrase, this verse, what motivates us in life? Is it what encourages us in all that we do? Maybe for some of you guys are looking at this verse and thinking, well, I feel like this just tells me how to do something. Well, it does, but it goes so much more beyond a simple how. It's more than whatever you do, make sure you do it this way. This statement underpins our whole lives. If I begin to live life looking the way I live, the way I interact with others, through the lens of saying and doing things in the name of the Lord, my life is going to be radically different. We're going to show the world that we're motivated by something, by someone beyond ourselves. We're motivated by obedience to our Lord and Savior. Motivated by a true understanding 
of how Christ has changed our lives through his death and resurrection, going back to the very first thing Paul talked about in chapter 3. Finally, as we finish looking at this pivotal statement, never forget to give thanks to God. After all, it's the power of Christ that enables us to do any good. And it is Christ who has changed us. How is this first not an encouragement to our lives? Finally, as we close out this thick passage, Paul gives some final commands and examples of how to live our lives for Christ as husbands, as fathers, as wives, mothers, children, as workers, as managers. Think about where we've come from this morning. We start with Paul's commands to change our focus then to change our actions through Christ's enablement. And then he has linked those changes with what should motivate us and encourage us with all we do, our obedience through his authority for his glory. Our obedience through his authority for his glory. Where Paul was using a fine-tip brush and saying specific sins and actions in our lives to change and put on, he gives us some more broader brush strokes in this last section. So I want to do the same thing and just hit some highlights of these next few verses. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Slaves, obey your masters in everything. Do everything for the Lord and not for men. And finally, masters, treat your slaves fairly, justly. Paul doesn't need to spend the time to tell us how to act in every situation. He's already given us a mantra, if you will, in every situation. Am I treating my wife in the name of the Lord or obedience to the Lord? How about as employees and managers? Are we living as Christ has called us to in every moment? When we leave here, will Paul's words carry beyond this afternoon when we're thinking about the sermon? When we come home from work later this week and we're frustrated? How are we going to act towards our kids or our spouse? Will Paul's words ring in your ears? When we're feeling lazy at work, will we stop and consider whether we're being obedient to Christ in that moment? When the whole world is looking at us, will we be encouraged to live life with the authority of Christ? When we're looking at goals and resolutions for the year, will we stop and take a moment to consider what truly motivates us in life? Will we take a moment to reorient ourselves around living for Christ, seeking to be obedient to him in all that we do? So I end with application for today and what I really want to leave you guys with. First, Paul talked that we are called to live a changed life, but never forget it's the life that Christ has enabled us to live, not on our own actions. To be encouraged by verse 17. Let that be what motivates you. Be motivated by Christ first and foremost in all that you do. And last, live an example as an example in the world for Christ. I asked in the beginning, what motivates us? What motivates you and me? I told you all in the beginning, what motivates me in running? The question is now, will I start living my life in obedience, motivated by the obedience to Christ? Will we start living our lives that way? Motivated to do all in his name and for his glory? Will we live each moment of our lives that whatever we do, in word or deed, it's done 
with the authority of Christ, done with obedience to Christ. This is a motivation we're called to live by. This is the life Christ has called us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, I, we all know we can do nothing without you. I cannot get up here and deliver your words without you. And I cannot go into the world living life the way you've called me to without you enabling me. Lord, I pray for all of us, for me especially, that as I leave here, how I interact with my wife, my son, my co-workers, Lord, that I'm motivated being obedient to you, Lord, to show the world that I am different because you've called me to that life. You've enabled me to live that life, to be an example in this world. I pray for each of us here, Lord, that your words, that your words find root in our lives and that we are motivated to go out here and live the life you've called us to. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Matt, that was wonderful. The men who had come forward will help us with communion.